If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And today, we are going to be bringing you an incredible conversation with TJ Muehlman about avoiding the pitfalls of messy data. Before we bring that to you, though, and before I introduce TJ, let me just remind you that if all goes well, in just two days, we are going to be recording the next Ask Dolph Live. That is your opportunity to sign up, jump into a group Zoom, and ask me any question that is challenging you professionally. Or if you're on the board, a board, challenging you as a board member. So please, please, if you're interested, if you want to ask a question, make sure you go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and sign up today. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to TJ Muehlman. TJ is the founder of Standard Data, which is a consulting group focused on using data to make better decisions in healthcare and public health. Now, TJ is definitely a numbers person. He's a data person, and he's also an IT person. And you see that when you look at his LinkedIn profile, you see that throughout his career. He went to Georgia Tech. He's been an engineer. He's managed software engineers. He has worked with startups that have leveraged social media and leveraged other IT opportunities for both nonprofits and for-profits. And so it's interesting because you kind of see this progression that, yes, at some point TJ was going to found his own company and would undoubtedly create something that made a really big impact. And by the way, his companies actually have won some awards for the impact that they have made in the public space and in the public sector. And so the other thing I want to make sure you know about TJ, and you see this when you look at his website, and you also see this when you look at his LinkedIn profile. He has a great sense of humor. And I'm just going to give you one quick example. At his LinkedIn profile, he includes one teaching position where he notes, quote, I also swear too much in class. And so anyone who puts that on their LinkedIn profile is someone I really want to have on the podcast. Hey, TJ, welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. 
I am thrilled you're here. And I'm also grateful, TJ, because we got about four minutes into the recording session and realized that I had failed to hit record on my fancy software. So thank you for being <laughs> willing to do a do over here. And I've hit record and we're ready to go. All right. So I noticed in toward the end of one of your blog posts, you compared extracting enormous value from untapped sources to an iconic line from Arrested Development. And that line is, there's always money in the banana stand. Can you unpack that for me? Yeah. So, you know, one of the superpowers I, I think I have is, is um, translating technical concepts into sort of uh, pop culture uh, memes or, or metaphors. Uh, and so for those unfamiliar, you know, this is a great line in Arrested Development. There's always money in the banana stand. And, and throughout this series, there's this banana stand and it's sort of poorly run. It's kind of a dumpster fire. Uh, it, it's got people coming and going and, and they don't really know what they're doing there. And they don't really know what value this banana stand. They sell bananas by the pier or on the pier. And so as you're watching the show, you're sort of like, what, what, why does anybody care about the banana stand? And it comes to find out that um, George Bluth, the, the patriarch of the family has literally duct taped millions or thousands of dollars uh, inside the banana stand. And when it catches on fire, the money goes with it. And so when I wrote this blog entry, I was sort of highlighting that in my viewpoint, that there's, we've reached this point with data that we have reams and reams of data, and we don't know what the value is in that data. And we're sort of overlooking the value of that data. And that comes in a lot of forms. And, and in my world, we work in public health. It's what can we use? How can we use data to mitigate the, the severity of disease? How can we use data to understand where disease is going to happen? And how do we use data to, to know where to send medicine to, you know, have help children leave long productive lives? So I, I kind of tie these very, this very serious subject of public health to a really goofy television show uh, to kind of highlight, there's always money in the banana sand. There's always value in data. How do you use that data to exact good change? So what are, what are some of the common ways that organizations will just have that data lying around that they're not using? Like, can you describe what some of that data might be? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's everything, right? In our world, um, we work primarily in low and middle income countries. So that's South Americans, Africa, and South Asia. These organizations have spreadsheets full of data around, you know, population figures and uh, demographic data and uh, surveillance data around where has disease popped up in the past and what medicines may have been deployed in previous um, drug administration platforms. So they're not necessarily using that data to actually understand where to go next. They've just collected it and now it's just sitting on somebody's laptop. And so we see that as an opportunity to kind of extract that data, put it into a data system and start to find out, answer questions about what might, might be happening next and, and how do we better understand the nature of disease. Got it. Got it. And so, um, it's interesting when you say that, I was, I was trying to think, some of the organizations that I'm familiar with, what might be some of the data that they have lying around that they're not using? And so I, I hear you 100%. It could maybe be something as simple as like area codes of phone numbers that are calling you if you're a regional or national organization. And just so you can like data mine that a little bit. Yeah. And it's also, you know, who, who you know, in the, in the context of nonprofits, it's um, who are your donors? What do you know about them? Who do they know? And, you know, most of our, our the organizations we work with are sort of global health nonprofits, but we have a variety of other non mission based nonprofits. And one of the things we've helped them do is, is um, 
understand their impact. Because for example, a lot of nonprofits that we've worked with, and as you mentioned in the intro, I've spent a good portion of my career working with nonprofits and helping nonprofits make sense of data. And one thing that we've noticed is that they have really wonderful missions, but I'll come to them and say, okay, what's the, what is your goal with data? What are you trying to do? And they'll tell me 75 things. And I'm like, okay, we got to, we got to whittle that down. We got to, we got to streamline those goals to maybe three or four. And, you know, we worked with this organization that works in Rwanda, for example, and um, we helped them kind of more succinctly describe what their goals were. And their goals were to help women coffee farmers farm more coffee or make or get more a higher yield from their coffee so they can make more money. And so once they kind of described that sort of overarching mission, we said, okay, well, first thing you got to understand is like how much money are they making now? And then at the end of the program, how much money are they making at the end? Like simple, simple stuff. And they were like, oh my gosh, that's really easy to track. And okay, so they're making 10,000 Rwandan shillings and then they're making 20,000. So there's a hundred percent increase. So it's little simple stuff like that. And you start doing that, um, that you can actually start to measure impact and measure what is working, what's not working. I love that you say that. So often when I'm talking with boards around strategic planning, what they'll ask for is like a KPI dashboard that has 75 different metrics on it. And I will so often say, you know, you're, you're the board. Perhaps management needs to have their eye on that, that large number of metrics, though probably not. What you all need are like four to six key metrics that you know that if those metrics are being achieved, probably a lot of the other metrics that are important to you are being achieved as well. And you keep your eye on those. That's exactly right. And, you know, we've now worked with some of the largest nonprofits or, or NGOs in the world, WHO as a client, CDC, Ministries of Health throughout Africa, and then some of the smallest ones where they're operating budgets, you know, 500000 to a million. And what we've kind of figured out is that that all of them have the same problem that you just described where they're, they're like, we want to see all the things. And our advice is actually very similar to yours. It's like, look, there's people who are in charge of understanding the minutia. Let them be in charge of it. But you at the stakeholder level need to kind of distill down some high-level goals, some pillars. And to that end, we've kind of created this thing called the data experience framework, which we'll kind of, we won't get into now, but this kind of, this concept of understanding what is it you're trying to accomplish, your high-level goals? Where do you get that data? How do you get that data? And then what are the pictures you want to paint with that data? And this is four, four buckets that we've kind of created. And, and we kind of bring that to our nonprofits um, because we're, we're a software company. But because we've done this for so long and because we've worked with so many nonprofits, we've seen common themes. And applying this framework has helped people kind of think more simply about their data. Got it. I'm going to ping off another one of your blog posts because you also talk about the importance of collecting clean data from the start. So, you know, so you identify those few metrics you're going to collect data on, but then actually making sure that the data that you collect is is clean and accurate. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I'll give you kind of a real specific use case. So we have a client in Haiti and, and they're doing super cool work. So what they're doing is they're, they have in Haiti, this concept of a matrone is what they call it. And it's similar to like a doula or a midwife uh, for childbirth. And they are tracking, they've been tracking them for like four years in Excel spreadsheets, the, the birth statistics, and they have all these sort of indicators. So how was the birth? Did the mother wash her hands at the end of the childbirth? And, you know, a whole bunch of different things that would be kind of common to anybody who's been in a, a room uh, when a baby's born. 
And the way they're collecting their data is they're just typing it all in. So they would type in TJ Muleman and they might type in Dolph and they might type in Nora. And every spelling was subtly different uh, because Muleman, like, hell, I can't spell Muleman right half the time, um, my last name. And so, you know, imagine somebody else they're typing in. So what you ended up with was three years of data of these Matrones and the spellings were all over the map. And you have maps, physical locations of where the childbirths were done. And they were just typing in, I did the childbirth in Lawrenceville, Georgia, or in Bothell, Washington. And they would misspell things. And it's these common little simple things that make trending and and creating sort of data, uh, meaningful data analysis, really difficult. You have to go in and clean that data. You have to standardize the spelling of names. You have to standardize the spelling of locations. And so... One of the things that we've helped kind of uh, our nonprofits and, and NGOs do is think more ahead of time of like, what kind of data are you collecting and can we standardize it? We're all about standardizing and making things really simple, templatized and sort of out of the box. And, and because when somebody's collecting data in the field, the more they have to think, the less likely you are, you are to have clean data. So we, we want to make it really simple picking things as opposed to typing things in radio buttons and check boxes and all that kind of nerdy stuff that isn't relevant for this conversation, but getting that clean data means your speed to making decisions with that data goes way up. And so part of what I think I also hear you saying then is having that validation on the back end. So like those drop downs, so that so one person can't do ST period and someone else spell out street. That's exactly right. And you're, you're exactly right. So it's it's validation both on the back end and the front end. Though. So it's literally like when they're in, in our app, it's it again, it kind of guardrails them a little bit. Um, so that's really on the front end. But on the, on the, the back end, most of our clients really, they pay us to help them identify outliers, identify problematic data. Uh, because when you're talking about some of these like WHO programs where you're talking, where they're, you know, working in 50 some odd countries or COVID, we do a lot of COVID work. Uh, we're talking about massive amounts of scale. You got to catch that data both on the front end when you can, but then on the back end too. Mm-hmm. Which which is, I think really kind of that, which I also going to steal from your blog post. So I'm not coming up with this but this one on my own listeners is review for accuracy then as you go. So like collect data for a short period of time and then stop and look at the data and go, okay, how accurate is the data we're collecting? Man, I can't tell you how important that is because, um, and that's something that's part of our sort of data experience framework is, is constant improvement of your data. And that's, I think one thing that the digital, I'm saying this as if it's new and it's not, but the digital transformation has brought us is the ability to be more proactive and to be a little bit more expedient with making changes. So for example, Ebola breaks out in the Democratic Republic of Congo in 2008. And they're doing a lot of data collection on paper. And so they printed out the questions they want people to ask. They've uh, distributed that. And then what if they discover that there's a question they want to add or they want to change the nature of a question? Well, they have to print all that stuff back up and send it back out. Holy crap, that's that's time consuming. And then on the back end, aggregating that data, you have to have people typing it into a spreadsheet. The digital transformation, and I say that, you know, again, here in North America, the digital transformation happened 15 years ago, but in low and middle income countries, it's still happening. And so the ability to kind of rapidly assess what's happening and make changes to the surveys they're doing, make changes to where they're sending medicine, make changes to what they're doing is because the data is flowing in real time and they can they can be more, again, more responsive. And, and doing that, as you mentioned, sort of it's daily, really checking the data. Where I'm going to push back just a little bit, and I agree on the whole, the digital transformation has happened in America, but 
especially in two key areas, one, small and medium-sized nonprofits, and also rural areas throughout the United States. I don't know that the digital transformation has fully happened. And so, like, as an example, I've stepped into some organizations as a consultant, and they're still collecting paper forms, whether that's on clients or volunteers or donors. Like, literally, they're still collecting paper forms. And that data either does not make it into any sort of a a database or even, frankly, a spreadsheet. Or if it does, then you've got all of those data entry errors that we were just talking about. No, and you're spot on. I'll tell this slight story to kind of confirm what what you just said. When the vaccines uh, were first, the COVID vaccines were first rolling out here in the U.S., so this would have been, what, March, February, February, March of last year, we predicted that one of the biggest challenges was going to be deploying it to rural counties. And, you know, people were, I think, enthusiastic about the vaccine distribution. And I think I was enthusiastic about it too. I was like, ah, finally the vaccine's here. Um, But the reality is that rural America uh, resembles in a lot of ways, the low and middle income countries that we work in. And I say that not uh, a negative, I'm not, I don't say that condescendingly. It simply reflects the reality that uh, broadband isn't as available. Internet connection, connection overall isn't as available. Cellular connectivity isn't that great. And other resources aren't as prevalent as they are in metro and urban areas. And so because of that, you're, you're spot on, you know, and, and especially in healthcare, I've had the good fortune of spending a lot of time in Africa and spending a lot of time in ministries of health um, on the ground in Africa. And I've seen firsthand how they're sort of leapfrogging us mm-hmm. in, in a lot of countries, um, leapfrogging the U.S. in terms of their healthcare systems, in terms of the way they use technology. And, it, and I think we're so mired in, this is a, conversation for another podcast, but we're so mired in the politics of it all that we can't decide what to do. And it's a little frustrating for somebody like me who, who deploys technology uh, around the world that we can't deploy here. So what are the low-hanging fruit for maybe some of those smaller, or medium-sized organizations, ways that you know, if they were to collect the data differently, they would be able to analyze the data? So I think it's understanding what tools are at your disposal, right? You know, there's Excel spreadsheets. You know, my goal is to replace spreadsheets uh, in a lot of ways, but that will never happen. And so I know that will never happen. Uh, But moving from paper forms, moving from using uh, non-structured data inputs like Google Docs and Microsoft Word. I mean, I'll tell you this story. Um, The World Health Organization for their measles program still collects a lot of data in Microsoft Word. Um, So for the small nonprofits out there who are like, I don't, you know, I don't know what to do. You're not alone. Uh, Even the biggest, most massive organizations in the world with multi-million dollar IT budgets still use the wrong things to collect data. That's really surprising. I just have to say that they're still collecting some data in Word. Genuinely oh, surprises absolutely. me. Wow. Yeah, it it's it kind of disturbs me. Um, so, but but at the same time, you know, a lot of the data that they're collecting, you know, is sort of quantitative, and some of it's qualitative. And so, some of the data is easy to collect in Word because you're like, how did the patient feel today? And that's not the easiest thing to put into Excel. And so, I get why they're doing it, but it just makes data analysis so hard. So, again, practically for the, the nonprofits out there, it's move to a more structured data collection tool. Again, Excel or standard data, what we what, what we do, we provide to our clients or type form or SurveyMonkey. Those tools are, are great for structuring your data and making it a little bit more digestible. And I will say part of me is pained when I hear you say that you hope one day to do away with Excel because I am an Excel junkie. Like, 
literally an Excel junkie. <laughs> so I am too. So let me be clear about that. And actually in total transparency, my wife works at Microsoft and I'm a Google Sheets junkie. Um, and so I don't tell her that, but I, so I am too, I am a big believer that Google Sheets or Microsoft Excel or whatever it is, or Airtable is a big popular one now. Those are wonderful for data analysis. But what we're frequently seeing is that they're not only used, they're not used for data analysis, they're used for data ingestion. They're used for collecting data. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to use any off the shelf tool, use Excel, great, please use it. Don't use Word or, or Google Docs. But ultimately what I want to see are tools like ours that sort of take the data from uh, an iPhone or a Google or an Android or your desktop and immediately put it into a database where that database can, that data system can exact some rules upon it and can automatically put it on a map or uh, do some trend analysis on it. So that's really what I'm getting at. I don't want to get rid of Excel. Yeah. I just want to get rid of it as the data collection tool. Thank goodness. And, and I will say, you all have developed some very cool interactive real-time maps, like having spent some time at your website, whether it's um, um, COVID vaccination in terms of number of people vaccinated versus uh, total number of shots yeah. available, made available. Um, like you, and But it's real-time. It's really cool the way you've created a system that literally gets updated every day. Yeah, every night at 9 p.m. You know, and I think that's, you know, really what um, what we do. And it's really interesting because in, in the private sector, outside of either consumer health or global health, you see the kinds of things we do are commonplace. You know, data, automated data routines, automated building of maps and dashboards. But inside healthcare, what we do is still really novel. And it's really uh, kind of makes me scratch my head a little bit. But yeah, that's that's what we've spent our whole kind of the lifespan of our com company doing is sort of how do we take these the banana stand right <laughs> and take that data or those bananas and and make some really delicious banana pudding out of it uh, and and that's that's the goal. Well, and and I will say like that's one of the things I think you all are succeeding at so well because again having looked at some of the charts and graphs and dashboards that you all have produced, it's very digestible. So you know e even in, even in cases when for example, the county level data on COVID vaccination and total number of shots, um, you know, provided each county. That's thousands of data points. But yet it's so easily digestible that you can look at it for five minutes and get a real sense. I totally agree. And I'm glad you, you noticed that. One thing when we built the, the COVID mapping project, it was a direct response to uh, the epidemiologist, which I'm surrounded by epidemiologists every day, every day. And I'm always the dumbest person in the room. Uh, these are folks with PhDs and, and master's degrees and just really bright people. But a lot of times they're used to talking to other epidemiologists. So they'll share complex visualizations that somebody else understand. But could I show it to my to my mom, who's not an epidemiologist, right? Who who just wants to know is COVID bad in her neighborhood? And so most of the data visualizations we build aren't really designed for epidemiologists. They're designed for the moms and dads in the world who want to understand if how prevalent is COVID or what have you, whatever disease we're mapping at the time, uh, how prevalent is it in their neighborhood? And I I, I kind of. I call it uh, the mom test. Like, can I show something to my mom? And she's going to be like, I totally know what that means. And we did that early on with COVID uh, mapping project was to show it to non-technical people. And, and they were all like, I totally get this. This is so, so helpful. Thank you. So that's our, that's our goal. So I was just about to ask you a question. Now I feel like you've answered it because I think the answer might be the mom test. Maybe we can dive a little deeper. So when organizations are looking at 
presenting data visually, so in charts, graphs, a dashboard, et cetera, to their board, uh, maybe in their annual report, or to funders. What are some of the key things they should be thinking about so that that data is easily digestible and easily accessible? Yeah, the key is to understand your audience. If you're presenting data to in an annual plan, annual, and, and a lot of the data for nonprofits ultimately makes it into uh, a final report or an annual uh, review, is to understand your audience and understand sort of what they're wanting to understand. So for example, we work with a nonprofit the, the, out of Rwanda um, who they track how people are doing, how f- uh, coffee farmers are doing it throughout the program. And they have a bunch of different indicators. And so they used to just collect that data in a spreadsheet and they would release that spreadsheet. And, and it was, you'd have to kind of dive in and be like, okay, it went from 22 to 32. And what is that like a 30% increase? I don't know, 50% increase. We actually did that for them. And we created like these really nice visualizations that sort of 50% increase or 20% decrease, or here's some bar charts. I think the goal has got to be understanding your user, understanding your, 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 the person who's going to be looking at the visualization and what is it you want to communicate and can you communicate that without having them having to like study it um, and simplifying the data, simplifying the, the outputs. I love that. And, and I think those are words to live by as we're taking, you know, as you said, like reams of data and presenting them to people. Those are definitely words to live by. Yeah, I agree. So TJ, I'd mentioned you're going to get an off the map question and I've got a great, great, great off the map question for you. The only thing that I don't like about this question is really, if we were just to turn the map over, this question's on the other side of the map. So it's technically not off the map. <laughs> but you have created the coolest database ever. <laughs> and it is called the Database of Nachos. Yeah. Well, where do I start? Um, so there's, there's a funny story to this that actually relates to global health. So let me tell you. I have, we have a client who's actually become a really close friend of mine. He comes to me about five years ago and says, okay, TJ, um, we're, we're plotting all of these, um, these villages in a particular part of Western Africa. And we want to be able to show them on a map, but there's so many of them that we need to be able to you know, draw a polygon around them and show all the villages that sit inside that region. Uh, can you do that? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I think I, think I can. And um as you mentioned in the intro, my background is an engineer. I was an engineer years ago. And so now I try to take on one project a year to kind of keep my engineering chops fresh. I don't code on a daily basis. So I, I was given this challenge by this client in 2016 uh, to create a map of villages and um, be able to draw a polygon and show them all. So that was the challenge. And I didn't have the data. So I was like, I need a bunch of data of places and put them on a map and I'll be able to draw a polygon around them and see what shows up. So I was like, what can I use? And I have just had the most righteous bowl of nachos or, or plate of nachos. And I was like, I really love nachos. Everybody talks about tacos and burritos, but nachos doesn't get enough love. And so I, I wrote a program that, that found all the, well, most of the restaurants in the United States that serve nachos, which is about 29,000 restaurants in the United States. In well, hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait. So I need to understand more. You wrote a program that found them. So this program crawled the web yeah. and looked at every restaurant or it what did it at, do? So what it did is it crawled Yelp and Foursquare. So if you remember Foursquare, you know, Foursquare is a very different company now, but yep. um, it, yeah, they have menus. So I, I, I crawled Yelp and Foursquare, which both of which uh, have a lot of uh, menu data. And so it would look for a city. So let's say Atlanta, 
show me all the restaurants in Atlanta and then crawl through each restaurant and look at the menu and find instances of nachos. <laughs> so um, it loaded it all into a database. So 29,000 restaurants, I think 2000 cities, all 50 states. And it kind of took on a life of its own. Like we, we ended up building it and um, it was so much fun and it got so much sort of positive traction. Uh, we just made a bunch of t-shirts uh, this year uh, for the team, uh, sweatshirts, we have buttons and it's an example. And it kind of goes back to, you know, you mentioned my sense of humor. I, I spend a lot of time talking about very serious subjects. And I think as a society, we have um, spent too much time talking about our jobs and not enough time talking about what we like. What do we, what do we love to do? And I love technology and I love using technology to, you know, uh, improve the human condition. As we talked about a little earlier about the Georgia tech mission statement. I love that mission statement. How do we take data and how do we use technology to improve people's lives? Also, how do we use technology to find where nachos are? It's possible. Those aren't mutually exclusive loves. And, and I think we kind of, people, we look at people with senses of humor as if they're not serious. And I'm like, I'm real serious. I'm deadly serious. I've flown all over the world. I have been in the worst hotels. I have eaten the bankest food. I have done wild things to help improve the human condition, but I also love to have a good time and be a little bit whimsical and fun. And it lets me sort of, it sort of offsets some of the seriousness of, of, you know, knowing that there are people dying um, um, of COVID or whatever. Uh, and it kind of helps, you know, keep me going. So um, that's where the database of nachos comes from. I really love the database of nachos and listeners just so you know, that acronym is Don D O N. So um, the database does have a name, I think. Um, and, also just have to say, like you, I love nachos. I'm based out of Georgia, so I was thrilled to see that one out of every 25 restaurants serving nachos in the U.S. is in my state, which means I'm overly represented in the nacho community. So I was I was very, very happy about that. Although disappointed that I don't live in Chicago because A is an awesome city. And apparently, if you like nachos, that's it, the place It is. And, and I'm going you know, to turn around the question. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you put olives on your nachos? Oh, I get everything they will put on there. I want, I want olives. I want fresh jalapenos. I want pickled jalapenos. Everything okay, they well, put on there. I, I like most of that answer, but we we, we don't ex, we don't acknowledge olives on on nachos. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, admittedly, my husband's not a huge olive fan, so if I'm doing it by myself, I I will. But if I'm with him, we'll we'll do it without the the olives. Yeah, and, and I get I get that it might not be as traditional, but I'm like, hey, you know, it's really good. <laughs> um, but uh, but again, I loved 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 that well, project. Good. Thank you, TJ. Th thank you, and and thank you for sharing um, so much great information about both how to collect data, how to display data, and of course the database of nachos. And listeners, we're going to link to that in the show notes separately, just so you can check out what the nacho scene is like in your town or your state. The other place that you should absolutely go is standardco.de. That's standardco.de. And that obviously is TJ's company's website, Standard Data. And when you go there, there's a couple things I want you to look for. The first is they have lots of case studies on ways they've helped other nonprofits. And I just have to share with you that by reading those case studies, you will get ideas about ways that you could be better using the data you're already collecting, better collect the data that you're already collecting, and frankly, better really display it and interpret it for folks. The second thing that I also really want you to check out is 
to spend some time on their resources page. They've got some great resources that will absolutely benefit you. Hey, TJ, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is this is wonderful. Listeners, I am so glad that you've joined us today for this conversation with TJ. And if you found it useful, if you have gained some insight that's going to help you better collect or use your data, then there's two other episodes that I would like to suggest you listen to. The first is Charities Who Love Charts with Tracy Stanley and Joshua Folker. That was episode 133. And the second is episode 192, Measuring Impact with Alan Mackey. And also, if you found this episode useful and you think someone else in your organization or a colleague at another organization would find it useful, hey, you know you've probably got your phone out, so go ahead and text this podcast episode to that person so that they can benefit from it as well. Listeners, that is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And I say it every time because the lawyers make me say it. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. And so obviously that means neither I nor the Goldenberg Group are providing tax, legal, or accounting advice. And so... You know, the lawyers also make me say this part, but it feels pretty obvious after I just said what I did. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on tax, legal, and accounting advice. If you find yourself in need of that type of professional counsel, please find a licensed, qualified person who specializes in the area that you need assistance in and get their advice. If you're not sure who to reach out to, you can always reach out to me and I am happy to try to make a connection with the right person.